All right, where's Amy Poehler? I want to point out that sitting next to Amy is Saru J. Raman. Give it up for Saru, everyone. On this episode of the Wavemaker Conversation series on sexual harassment, we pick up where Seth Meyers and the Golden Globes left off. My name is Saru Jayaraman. I'm the co-founder and president of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, or Rock United. I'm also the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley. My guest has been fighting to raise wages and improve working conditions in the restaurant industry for the last 16 years. And in particular, I've been fighting for the last many years to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers in the United States, which is still unfortunately just $2.13 an hour. Saru is going to tell us how sexual harassment so often plays out in restaurants. You've got a majority female workforce having to live on tips and being told by managers you should dress more sexy and show more cleavage and having to put up with that to feed their families. That's where it starts. It often leads to something far worse. Nikki graduated from University of Maryland with honors, wanted to go into hospitality, actually had a dream to own her own restaurant. And every day the maitre d' would stick his hand down her pants Saru will also tell us about the good guys. There are good men everywhere, and they're coming out of the woodwork as I go around the country talking about these issues. And as we always do on Wavemaker Conversations, we'll get to know our guest better as a person. We'll find out about her restaurant roots of her immigrant family, and how Saru was accepted to Harvard at the age of 16, and why she chose not to go. It was not, <laughs> it was all sort of not as intentional as it might sound. I'm Michael Shoulder. Joining me from her home, not far from the UC Berkeley campus where she works, is Saru Jayaraman. A lot of us did not know your name or about your organization until you appeared on the red carpet recently with Amy Poehler at the uh, Golden Globes. First of all, tell me a little bit about that experience. And I want to know, is there the equivalent of a red carpet in the restaurant industry? Yeah, I mean, that experience was... Surreal. I found out on Thursday that I was going to the Golden Globes on Sunday. It was just a whirlwind, and it's honestly been a whirlwind since then, but it's been excellent leverage and attention on the issue. So it's been extraordinary. There is an equivalent red carpet in the restaurant industry. It's called the James Beard Foundation. They have annual awards giving out awards for Top Chef and Top New Restaurant. And I've gotten a James Beard Leadership Award for my work in this industry, but Interestingly, there has been no award for how well you treat your workers. That's exactly what we're trying to change. We actually have a guide that tells consumers how restaurants fare on issues of wages and benefits and promotions. And we want to encourage consumers to take that into account when they eat out. So let me ask you, because one of the reasons this story has exploded in Hollywood and Hollywood is paying attention is that there is a, clearly a wave of stories that is hurting their reputation. And in fact, it's been difficult to hear, oh my gosh, this person has been doing that. I can't watch any more of his movies. The thing about our industry, maybe, maybe it's different from Hollywood, maybe not, is the data shows that it isn't that there are a few bad apples in our industry. It's that, unfortunately, this sexual harassment is just pervasive and it's the norm rather than the exception. The exception is the folks that do it right. 
In our industry, what's really needed is policy change, not so much going after individual restaurateurs or not eating at particular restaurants. What's really needed is structural change. We need one fair wage. We need to get rid of the lower wage for tipped workers because really the source of the problem is not individual bad actors. It's the fact that you've got a majority female workforce having to live on tips and being told by managers you should dress more sexy and show more cleavage in order to make more money in tips and having to put up with that to feed their families. That's the real problem here. And there's a very clear policy solution. And so, you know, you've been at this for years. Are there some particular individuals or an individual who you've met who has been a server in a restaurant that you think typifies just what they are up against as a result of the wage disparity? Oh, so many. I'll tell the story of Nikki, who I profiled in my first book, Behind the Kitchen Door. Nikki graduated from University of Maryland with honors, wanted to go into hospitality, actually had a dream to own her own restaurant. She even had a dream eventually to own her own hotel. And so started out working in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital. She wanted to be in the center of it all, you know. Started working at this really fancy fine dining restaurant in Union Station, serving senators and congresspeople, and earning the wage in the nation's capital, which at that time was $2.77 an hour. It's gone up to $3.77 an hour in Washington, D.C. now, but at the time it was $2.77. And even working in a really fine dining restaurant, Nikki struggled to make ends meet. She often couldn't pay the rent because tips fluctuate so wildly. You know, tips go up and down every hour, every day, every month, every season. And while the tips go up and down, of course, your rent and bills don't go up and down. They stay pretty much the same. And so she ended up being evicted, ended up living on a friend's couch. But even worse than the economic instability, which so many people in this industry put up with, even worse than that was the sexual harassment. It was pretty severe where she worked. The manager, of course, told her regularly, you have to show more cleavage and dress more sexy to make more money in tips. And every day, the maitre d' would stick his hand down her pants and his thumb up her butthole um, as just like greeting. There's such a sexual behavior in the restaurant and so much of it is based on the fact that you've got a largely female workforce in the front relying on tips and that all the men in the restaurant if they're the managers or the kitchen staff they have so much power over those women because those women relying on tips from the customer have to please the customer and that means the meal has to please the customer and the woman has no power over the meal except to please the kitchen staff. That means she has to please the manager to get the best tables and the best shifts in order to get the best tipping customers. I mean, everybody has so much power over her because she doesn't get a wage, because she's so reliant on tips. And that was Nikki's situation. And that leads to a very sexualized environment where Nikki, like so many others, felt like whatever the maitre d' did to her. She had to put up with whatever the kitchen staff said or did to her, whatever her coworkers who are men did to her because she relied on all of them to ultimately please the customer and get the money and tips. And so this very sexualized environment reached a climax when one evening all of the workers from the restaurant went to one coworker's house and she 
was was raped. She was she was raped. And until I interviewed her, she hadn't really named it as rape or sexual assault. And she says, you know, it's not like the rape happened at the restaurant. It's not like a manager raped me. It was a coworker. And yet I know that the structure and the environment of the restaurant, the fact that men basically had their way with women because the women were so completely reliant on the men to earn their income and tips. I know that's what ultimately led to this man in this apartment feeling like he had the ability to just take advantage of me. And that is just so typical. I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard like that. I was speaking on the radio the other day and a caller calls in and says, you know, until you talked about sexual harassment in the restaurant industry, I didn't even remember this. When I worked as a server as a young woman, every day I'd walk into the kitchen and the men would make me show my breasts in order to get the food to take to the customers. Every day. And she said, I didn't think about it as sexual harassment then. I didn't even think about it as sexual harassment later in life until you just raised it on this radio show. And so that is the kind of experience most young women, our daughters, experience on a daily basis, but don't even recognize it as harassment. That's what we need to change. So first of all, I mean, so many thoughts are going through my head. I'm sure everybody who reads your book or speaks to you stops and pauses on that figure of $2.13 an hour as the federal minimum wage. I'm sure most people are not aware that such a thing exists in our country, a $2.13 an hour minimum wage for tipped workers. And of course, you've done a lot of research and you've reported on some states that are really paying their restaurant workers a fair base minimum wage in addition to the tips. Tell me how that's evolved and what we can take away from that. Yeah. So it's true. Most people have no idea that there's a lower minimum wage, no idea that actually this lower minimum wage is a legacy of slavery. The restaurant industry right now is the second largest, absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. It's almost 13 million workers. One in 11 Americans currently works in the industry. One in two of us in America has worked in this industry at some point in our lifetimes. And yet it's the absolute lowest paying employer due to the money, power, and influence of the trade lobby, the National Restaurant Association, which represents the Fortune 500 chains, the Applebee's, the IHOPs, and has been around in some form or another since the emancipation. The Restaurant Association demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything at all, let them have a $0 wage and let them live on tips. And that $0 wage was codified into the first minimum wage law that passed in 1938. We went from $0 in 1938 to the whopping $2.13 an hour today, and it's between 2 and 7 and 43 states. But as you mentioned, seven states got rid of this legacy of slavery many decades ago. That's California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska all require the industry to pay the full minimum wage with tips on top. And these seven states have higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the restaurant industry. These jobs don't disappear just because these workers get a wage. We have higher rates of tipping, actually, in these seven states. Tipping doesn't go away. But what we do have is half the rate of sexual harassment in these seven states. And that's because women in these states get a full wage from their employer. They don't have to put up with anything and everything from the customer. They can't be told by the manager, dress more sexy to make money to feed your family because they're actually getting a wage from their boss. And that's an extraordinary statistic. If you could cut sexual harassment in half just by requiring this industry to pay its own workers like every other industry, who wouldn't do that? 
you're going to experience harassment vis-a-vis relative to how much power you have on the job. And the point that I'm making is you give women so much more power in these seven states when they get an actual wage from their boss. I mean, we're talking about not a low-wage job, but a no-wage job. Their only income is from the customer, and that is creating a situation in which they are very highly vulnerable to not just customer harassment, that then makes you vulnerable to objectification from coworkers and management. So the real situation that is the same, whether you're working in a mine or working in a restaurant or working in an office, your power is very much measured by your income, your wage. I mean, gender pay inequity and sexual harassment are two sides of the same coin, which is the imbalance of power between men and women in the workplace. And let me ask you, how were you able to determine that the rate of sexual harassment was cut in half in these better paying states? We surveyed 1,000 restaurant workers across the country, and we did regression analysis. We compared the experiences of women in the seven states versus the 43 states. We found that women in the seven states reported half the rate of harassment. We also found that women in the seven states reported that their managers told them show more cleavage to get more money in tips at one-third the rate of women in the 43 states. 90% of those 1,000 workers reported experiencing sexual behavior in the restaurant that was scary or unwanted, and that that rate was cut in half in the seven states. Before that, we had done 10,000 surveys of workers and tons of government data analysis. So there's lots of various forms of evidence, government data, our research, interviews with both workers and employers that are corroborating what we know to be true, that this industry has the highest rates of harassment and there's some simple policy solutions for it. I was fascinated with your book because you dealt with the restaurants that the vast majority of Americans will regularly go to for a meal out as opposed to you know the, the real high-end places, which also have a mixed record. That's right. I think a lot of people do recognize this is hard work. I just think in general, restaurant workers often tell us when they tell somebody I'm a server. The next question is, oh, yeah, what else are you planning to be? (laughs) But a lot of women take great pride in this work as hospitality workers. In Europe, you go to school for many years to be a hospitality professional. It's just that in this country, these are seen as low-skilled, low-value jobs, but they're not. They're professional jobs. And workers in this industry want people to know in America This should be a profession. I mean, that's precisely why we're trying to say we need an actual wage. Ultimately, this is about recognizing these individuals as the professionals that they are. And if you think about any other profession, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, can you imagine a hospital telling patients, we're not going to pay the doctors, you're going to pay them in tips? Or a school telling students, we're not going to pay the teachers, you pay their wages in tips. I mean, it would be ridiculous. It would be humiliating. It would be deprofessionalizing. And that's exactly what we're experiencing in our industry. That's a perspective-changing image you just gave me. So I guess the question I have for you is, there are good guys everywhere, and sometimes they stand up, and sometimes they decide to be bystanders. Have you come across stories of good guys in restaurants where women are being harassed who have stood up? Absolutely. There are good men everywhere, and they're coming out of the woodwork. As I go around the country talking about these issues, I'm getting... Lots of emails from men that are surprising me and moving me. There are good men in restaurants who stand up for their coworkers. I think there are good people, men and women everywhere, who either experience harassment, 
or witness it and don't know what to do. And that's why this moment is so incredibly important because it's giving so many more people the courage to speak up. And that's what we want to encourage more and more of. So if you could give me a specific example of one of these men's stories, the specific case, and then how you responded to that man. Recently, I was on Bill Maher, Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO, and I had a very moving email from a man who said, I grew up working in restaurants, so did my sister and my mom, so did my whole family, and I must not have known it because I'm a man, but now after hearing you, I I realize every day my mom and my sister would come home from work just looking so humiliated and dejected, and now I understand why, and you've really changed my perspective on this industry, so tell me what I can do, and my... My response to everybody in America is two things. If you work in a restaurant, to absolutely come forward. And sometimes it can be hard to do that by yourself. And so we advise coming to our organization. Our website is rocunited.org. We provide free legal support, free counseling, all kinds of support to any worker in America who's looking for help, whether they're seeing something or they're experiencing it themselves. The person who's responsible when a customer is harassing a woman. By law, the manager is supposed to tell that customer to leave. And that never happens. Customer is king in our industry because we have this weird system in which we allow the employer to pay nothing and the customer to pay the worker's wages. So, If I can pause there, because you say by law, you went to Yale Law School. What is the law that says a manager, a restaurant is required to basically eject a customer who is harassing Equal Employment Opportunities Commission regulates that Equal Employment Act. The law actually states that the manager has to ensure an environment that is not a hostile working environment, that does not include harassment. So that means if a woman experiences harassment from a coworker or a customer and tells the manager, the manager is then immediately liable to ensure harassment stops. And so in most cases, that means telling the customer to leave. That never happens. And I don't think most workers or even managers or employers or anybody knows that the law requires managers to ensure that a woman is not being harassed by customers. And so what can we do as customers? We can go up to a restaurant owner. We can say, you know, I love eating here, but I want to make sure that women are treated well in this restaurant. I would like to see you pay the full minimum wage. And I would like to see you tell customers to leave who harass their workers. All we have to do is open our arms wide and say, we know change can be scary, but here's an association where you could join a network of great restaurant owners who are learning together how to do things differently, to do things better. Clearly, you have such passion for this profession and for elevating this profession and making sure that the people who are in it are treated equitably. And this is where I want to just turn to your personal story, because having just read the opening of your book, Fork, where you talk about your family history, I was quite moved. So if you can just tell us a little bit about the family that you were raised in, including the roots in India and your great-grandfather, because it's a wonderful story. Thank you. Well, I started this work in the restaurant industry because of 9-11, You know, I was asked to start a relief center to support the workers from Windows on the World, the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, and the organization grew over the last 16 years. So I didn't start this work knowing my roots in the restaurant industry, but the more work that I did over the last many years, the more my mother would tell me about the fact that actually my great-grandfather owned 
a restaurant in a very small village in India called Karur. It was really a communal gathering spot for travelers or people whose wives were away. And definitely this idea of community and community meaning community not just of the consumers who'd come and eat at these communal tables, but also of the workers. You know, every restaurant, whether it was my great-grandparents' restaurant or here in America today, people use the word family so much in our industry. We're a family. We're a family. And the point that I make in the book is as much as that might have been true in the way people perceive each other, you know, my great-grandfather paid for his workers' weddings and took care of them, and my mother considered them part of the family growing up. Despite all of that, a workplace is not a family, and if it is, then it should be a functional family. It can't be a dysfunctional family. And so being in a family environment, whether it's my great-grandfather or any restaurant owner today, can't be justification for not paying people well and treating them well. We want to feel like it's a team and... And at the same time, you don't want the idea of family to allow for kind of a dysfunction or exploitation. And so for me, my family story provides both the example of what could be and also the example of what shouldn't be at the same time. And basically, it shouldn't be because you can't necessarily duplicate that. You have to have policies in place. That's right. You have to have policies in place. You have to have regulations. If you're professionals, then everybody needs to be treated as professionals, not just family members. Let me just stay on your, again, so people get to know you, that personal story just a little longer. But did your grandparents then go into that business or did they change fields? The way I'm connected to my great-grandfather is through my grandmother. And as a girl, she was not allowed to work in the restaurant. So, so no, she didn't continue in the business. But my mother has lots of memories of being in the restaurant, running around the restaurant, playing in the restaurant, basically living in the restaurant. And so those were passed down to me. And certainly I, I don't know if it was in the blood or something, but I love to eat out. I love to take my children out to eat. And I would love if my children, I have two little girls, end up working in this industry. I just don't want them to experience what most young women in this industry experience because what I've heard after all these years of doing this work from thousands of women is that the experience of harassment most young women face, because it's the first job in high school, college, or graduate school, impacts them for the rest of their lives. And so our industry really sets the standard, not just for the restaurant industry, but the whole economy. I've had celebrities, senators, all different kinds of women, professional lawyers, doctors tell me I've been harassed more recently in my job and I didn't do anything about it because it was never as bad as it was when I was a young woman working in restaurants. And I just don't want my daughters to experience that. I want them to work in this industry. I don't want their standards to be set by such a low expectation for how men treat women. Let me just ask you how old your daughters are. My daughters right now are five and seven years old. Five and seven. How much do you expose your kids to about your work? Or is there any connection yet in terms of trying to instill values based on the work that you're doing? Oh, 100%. They come with me to everything. That book forked. When that book came out, my second daughter was four months old and I took her on book tour with me. And so she traveled the country (laughs) and that's the way it's been all growing up. They've come to protests and rallies and meetings and conferences. They've just been at everything and they've learned so much and they say they want to work for Rock, my organization, when they grow up and they want to be restaurant workers and they talk about justice for women and girls and it's really impacted them and I hope in a really positive way. 
It sounds like your kids are getting a, uh, by example, a great education, a great ethical education. This is a human interest question, and anybody who looks you up is going to say, what? She rejected Harvard at the age of 16. She was accepted and rejected so she could be closer to home. Just tell me about that decision. How did you get into Harvard at 16? What did your parents do to get you to a point where you were admitted to Harvard and then chose something closer to home? It was all sort of not as intentional as it might sound. I mean, I did skip two grades early on because my mom spent a lot of time with us before we went to kindergarten. So we were reading and writing poetry at the age of four. And so we were always advanced and we skipped grades early on. So we graduated at 16. And then at that point, my parents being immigrants, as much as they knew that education was important, they really didn't know very much about one college versus another. They thought they were all great. And they really didn't want me to be across the country at the age of 16. And I had also got a large scholarship from UCLA. And I didn't know enough at the time to say, no, I have to go to Harvard over UCLA. And I ended up going to Harvard later, so it was all fine. And, you know, fate has its ways. President Clinton ended up coming and recognizing me (laughs) as the top student at UCLA. So I don't think that would have happened had I gone to Harvard. So there were some really good things that ended up coming out of it. Final question. I have to imagine sexual harassment aside, that as a woman of color, and especially your parents as immigrants, was there any central experience that you had that sort of alerted you to the fact that not everybody's going to treat me the same? Oh, not one. It's been a whole lifetime of feeling like I'm fighting. (laughs) But you know, the older you get, you try to balance the fight with some level of peace and acceptance and empathy. I think that's the new skill I'm so proud to have (laughs) gained over the years is that you feel a lot of empathy even for the people who discriminate against you. And through that empathy, you're able to achieve some peace yourself. So that's the new place I'm at. That's a powerful way to end it. Sarajaya Rahman, thank you so much for joining me and spending this time on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. On the next episode in two weeks, I'm going to continue this series on pioneers in the field of sexual harassment. They will share original insights and stories that breaking news coverage overlooks. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.